0: Hello there, and welcome to tonight's episode of Down to Sleep. This is the podcast of softly spoken stories to help you get a good night's rest. Tonight is a reading of a series of unfortunate events by Lemony Snicket. This has been one of the most requested books on the podcast, and I hope that you enjoy it. If you would like to support the podcast, hear everything first, and get to vote on what book I read next, please do join me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Sleep. We're actually already about to finish this book on the Patreon version of the podcast, as that goes out twice a week, so we get a lot more time to spend together and read our favourite books. There is also a YouTube channel if you would like to listen to the YouTube version, and that is youtube.com slash down to sleep. But wherever you are listening, and however you are listening, I'm glad you're here. So let's tuck you in, take a nice deep breath, and let's get down to sleep. With a series of unfortunate events by Lemony Snicket. If you are interested in stories with happy endings, you would be better off reading some other book. In this book, not only is there no happy ending, there is no happy beginning, and very few happy things happen in the middle. This is because not very many happy things happened in the lives of the three Baudelaire youngsters. Violet, Klaus, and Sonny Baudelaire were intelligent children, and they were charming and resourceful, and had pleasant facial features. But they were extremely unlucky, and most everything that happened to them was rife with misfortune, misery, and despair. I'm sorry to tell you this, but That is how the story goes. Their misfortune began one day at Briny Beach. The three Baudelaire children lived with their parents in an enormous mansion at the heart of a dirty and busy city. Occasionally, their parents gave them permission to take a rickety trolley. The word rickety you probably know here means unsteady or likely to collapse. Alone to the seashore, where they would spend the day, as a sort of vacation, as long as they were home for dinner. This particular morning it was grey and cloudy, which didn't bother the Baudelaire youngsters one bit. When it was hot and sunny, briny beach was crowded with tourists, and it was impossible to find a good place to lay one's blanket. On grey and cloudy days, the Baudelaire's had the beach to themselves, to do what they liked. Violet Baudelaire, the eldest, liked to skip rocks. Like most 14-year-olds, she was right-handed, so the rocks skipped farther across the murky water when Violet used her right hand than when she used her left. As she skipped rocks, she was looking out at the horizon and thinking about an invention she wanted to build. Anyone who knew Violet well could tell she was thinking hard, because her long hair was tied up in a ribbon, to keep it out of her eyes. Violet had a real knack for inventing and building strange devices, so her brain was often filled with images of pulleys and levers and gears, and she never wanted to be distracted by something as trivial as her hair. This morning she was thinking about how to construct a device that could retrieve a rock After you had skipped it into the ocean. Klaus Baudelaire, the middle child and the only boy, liked to examine creatures in tide pools. Klaus was a little older than twelve and wore glasses, which made him look intelligent. He was intelligent. The Baudelaire parents had an enormous library in their mansion. A room filled with thousands of books on nearly every subject. Being only twelve, Klaus, of course, had not read all of the books in the Baudelaire library, but he had read a great many of them, and had retained a lot of the information from his readings. He knew how to tell an alligator from a crocodile. He knew who killed Julius Caesar. And he knew much about the tiny, slimy animals found at Briny Beach, which he was examining now. Sonny Baudelaire, the youngest, liked to bite things. She was an infant, and very small for her age, scarcely larger than a boot. What she lacked in size, however, she made up for with the size and sharpness of her four teeth. Sonny was at an age where one mostly speaks in a series of unintelligible shrieks, except when she used the few actual words in her vocabulary, like bottle, mummy, and bite. Most people had trouble understanding what it was that Sunny was saying. For instance, this morning she was saying Gak over and over, which probably meant, look at that mysterious figure emerging from the fog. Sure enough, in the distance, along the misty shore of Briny Beach, there could be seen a tall figure, striding toward the Baudelaire children. Sonny had already been staring and shrieking at the figure for some time when Klaus looked up from the spiny crab he was examining and saw it too. He reached over and touched Violet's arm, bringing her out of her inventing thoughts. Look at that, Klaus said, and pointed toward the figure. It was drawing closer, and the children could see a few details. It was about the size of an adult, except its head was tall and rather square. What do you think it is? Violet asked. I don't know, Klaus said, squinting at it. But it seems to be moving right toward us. We're alone on the beach, Violet said, a little nervously. There's nobody else it could be moving toward. She felt the slender, smooth stone in her left hand, which she had been about to try to skip as far as she could. She had a sudden thought to throw it at the figure, because it seemed so frightening. It only seems scary, Klaus said, as if reading his sister's thoughts, because of all the mist. This was true. As the figure reached them, The children saw with relief that it was not anybody frightening at all, but somebody they knew, Mr. Poe. Mr. Poe was a friend of Mr. and Mrs. Baudelaire's, whom the children had met many times at dinner parties. One of the things Violet, Klaus and Sonny really liked about their parents was that they didn't send their children away when they had company over, but allowed them to join the adults at the dinner table and participate in the conversation as long as they helped clear the table. The children remembered Mr. Poe, because he always had a cold and was constantly excusing himself from the table to have a fit of coughing in the next room. Mr. Poe took off his top hat, which made his head look large and square in the fog, and stood for a moment, coughing loudly into a white handkerchief. Violet and Klaus moved forward to shake his hand and say, "'How do you do?' "'How do you do?' said Violet. "'How do you do?' said Klaus. "'How do you?' said Sonny. "'Fine, thank you,' said Mr. Poe, but he looked very sad. For a few seconds, nobody said anything, and the children wondered what Mr. Poe was doing there at Briny Beach, when he should have been at the bank in the city.' where he worked. He was not dressed for the beach. "'It's a nice day,' Violet said finally, making conversation. Sonny made a noise that sounded like an angry bird, and Klaus picked her up and held her. "'Yes, it is a nice day,' Mr. Poe said absently, staring out at the empty beach. "'I'm afraid I have some very bad news for you children.' The three Baudelaire siblings looked at him. Violet, with some embarrassment, felt the stone in her left hand and was glad she had not thrown it at Mr. Poe. Your parents, Mr. Poe said, have perished in a terrible fire. The children didn't say anything. They perished, Mr. Poe said in a fire that destroyed the entire house. I'm very, very sorry to tell you this, my dears. Violet took her eyes off Mr. Poe and stared out at the ocean. Mr. Poe had never called the Baudelaire children, my dears, before. She understood the words he was saying, but thought he must be joking, playing a terrible joke on her and her brother and sister. Perished, Mr. Poe said means killed. We know what the word perished means, Klaus said crossly. He did know what the word perished meant, but he was still having trouble understanding exactly what it was that Mr. Poe had said. It seemed to him that Mr. Poe must somehow have misspoken. The fire department arrived, of course, Mr. Poe said, but they were too late. The entire house was engulfed in fire. It burned to the ground. Klaus pictured all of the books in the library going up in flames. Now he'd never read all of them. Mr. Poe coughed several times into his handkerchief before continuing. I was sent to retrieve you here, to take you to my home, where you'll stay for some time while we figure things out. I am the executor of your parents' estate." That means I will be handling their enormous fortune and figuring out where you children will go. When Violet comes of age, the fortune will be yours, but the bank will take charge of it until you are old enough. Although he said he was the executor, Violet felt like Mr. Poe was the executioner. He had simply walked down to the beach to them and changed their lives forever. Come with me, Mr. Poe said, and held out his hand. In order to take it, Violet had to drop the stone she was holding. Klaus took Violet's other hand, and Sonny took Klaus's other hand. And in that manner, the three Baudelaire children, the Baudelaire orphans now, were led away from the beach and from their previous lives. It is useless for me to describe to you how terrible Violet, Klaus, and even Sonny felt in the time that followed. If you've ever lost someone very important to you, then you already know how it feels. And if you haven't, you cannot possibly imagine it. For the Baudelaire children, it was of course especially terrible because they had lost both their parents at the same time and for several days they felt so miserable they could scarcely get out of bed. Klaus found he had little interest in books. The gears in Violet's inventive brain seemed to stop, and even Sonny, who of course was too young to really understand what was going on, bit things with less enthusiasm. Of course it didn't make things any easier, that they had lost their home as well, and all their possessions. As I'm sure you know, to be in one's own room, in one's own bed, can often make a bleak situation a little better. But the beds of the Baudelaire orphans had been reduced to charred rubble. Mr. Poe had taken them to the remains of the Baudelaire mansion to see if anything had been unharmed, and it was terrible. Violet's microscope had fused together in the heat of the fire. Klaus's favourite pen had turned to ash, and all of Sonny's teething rings had melted. Here and there, the children could see traces of the enormous home they had loved. Fragments of their grand piano. An elegant bottle in which Mr. Baudelaire kept brandy. The scorched cushion of the window seat where their mother liked to sit. And read. Their home destroyed. The Baudelaires had to recuperate from their terrible loss in the Poe household, which was not at all agreeable. Mr. Poe was scarcely at home because he was very busy attending to the Baudelaire affairs, and when he was home, he was often coughing so much he could barely have a conversation. Mrs. Poe purchased clothing for the orphans that was in grotesque colours and itched, and the two Poe children, Edgar and Albert, were loud and obnoxious boys with whom the Baudelaires had to share a tiny room that smelled of some sort of ghastly flower. But even given the surroundings, the children had mixed feelings when over a dull dinner of boiled chicken, boiled potatoes, and blanched. The word blanched here means boiled. String beans. Mr. Poe announced that they were to leave his household the next morning. Good, said Albert, who had a piece of potato stuck between his teeth. Now we can get our room back. I'm tired of sharing it. Violet and Klaus are always moping around, never any fun and the baby bites,' Edgar said, tossing a chicken bone to the floor as if he were an animal in a zoo, and not the son of a well-respected member of the banking community. "'Where will we go?' Violet asked nervously. Mr. Poe opened his mouth to say something, but erupted into a brief fit of coughing. "'I have made arrangements,' he said finally, "'for you to be raised,' by a distant relative of yours who lives on the other side of town. His name is Count Olaf. Violet, Klaus, and Sonny looked at one another, unsure of what to think. On one hand, they didn't want to live with the pose any longer. On the other hand, they had never heard of Count Olaf and didn't know what he would be like. Your parents' will, Mr Poe said, instructs that you be raised in the most convenient way possible. Here in the city, you'll be used to your surroundings, and this Count Olaf is the only relative who lives within the urban limits. Klaus thought this over for a minute, as he swallowed a chewy bit of bean. But our parents never mentioned Count Olaf to us. Just how is he related to us, exactly?' Mr. Poe sighed and looked down at Sonny, who was biting a fork and listening closely. He is either a third cousin four times removed, or a fourth cousin three times removed. He's not your closest relative on the family tree, but he is the closest geographically. That's why, if he lives in the city, Violet said, why didn't our parents ever invite him over? Possibly because he was very busy, Mr. Poe said. He's an actor by trade, and often travels around the world with various theatre companies. I thought he was a count, Klaus said. He is both a count and an actor, Mr. Poe said. Now, I don't mean to cut short our dinner, but You children have to pack up your things, and I have to return to the bank to do some work. Like your new legal guardian, I am very busy myself. The three Baudelaire children had many more questions for Mr. Poe, but he had already stood up from the table, and with a slight wave of his hand, departed from the room. They heard him coughing into his handkerchief and then the front door creaked shut as he left the house. Well, Mrs. Poe said, you three had better start packing. Edgar, Albert, please help me clear the table. The Baudelaire orphans went to the bedroom and glumly packed their few belongings. Klaus looked distastefully at each ugly shirt Mrs. Poe had bought for him as he folded them and put them into a small suitcase. Violet looked around the cramped, smelly room in which they had been living, and Sunny crawled around, solemnly biting each of Edgar and Albert's shoes, leaving small teeth marks in each one so she would not be forgotten. At bedtime, they tossed and turned all night, scarcely getting any sleep between the loud snoring of Edgar and Albert and their own worried thoughts. Finally, Mr. Poe knocked on the door and stuck his head into the bedroom. Rise and shine, Baudelaire, he said. It's time for you to go to Count Olaf's. Violet looked around the room. Even though she didn't like it, she felt nervous about leaving. Do we have to go right this minute, she asked. Mr. Poe opened his mouth to speak, but had to cough a few times before he began. "'Yes, you do. I'm dropping you off on my way to the bank, so we need to leave as soon as possible. Please get out of bed and get dressed,' he said briskly. The word briskly here means quickly, so as to get the Baudelaire children to leave the house. The Baudelaire children left the house.' Mr. Poe's automobile rumbled along the cobblestone streets of the city, toward the neighbourhood where Count Olaf lived. They passed horse-drawn carriages and motorcycles along Doldrum Drive. They passed the Fickle Fountain, an elaborately carved monument that occasionally spat out water in which young children played. They passed an enormous pile of dirt where the Royal Gardens once stood. Before too long, Mr. Poe drove his car down a narrow alley lined with houses made of pale brick and stopped halfway down the block. Here we are, Mr. Poe said in a voice undoubtedly meant to be cheerful. Your new home. The Baudelaire children looked out and saw the prettiest house on the block. The bricks had been cleaned very well. And through the wide and open windows, one could see an assortment of well-groomed plants. Standing in the doorway, with her hand on the shiny brass doorknob, was an older woman, smartly dressed, who was smiling at the children. In one hand she carried a flowerpot. "'Hello there,' she called out. "'You must be the children Count Olaf is adopting.' Violet opened the door of the automobile and got out to shake the woman's hand. It felt firm and warm, and for the first time in a long while, Violet felt as if her life and the lives of her siblings might turn out well after all. Yes, she said, yes, we are. I am Violet Baudelaire, and this is my brother Klaus and my sister Sonny. And this is Mr. Poe, who's been arranging things for us since the death of our parents. Yes, I heard about the accident, the woman said, as everyone said, How do you do? I am Justice Strauss. That's an unusual first name, Klaus remarked. It's my title, she explained, not my first name. I serve as a judge on the High Court. How fascinating. Violet said. And are you married to Count Olaf? Goodness me, no, Justice Strauss said. I don't actually know him that well. He's my next door neighbor. The children looked from the well scrubbed house of Justice Strauss to the dilapidated one next door. The bricks were stained with soot and grime. There were only two small windows, which were closed with the shades drawn even though it was a nice day. Rising above the windows was a tall and dirty tower that tilted slightly to the left. The front door needed to be repainted, and carved in the middle of it was an image of an eye. The entire building sagged to the side like a crooked tooth. Oh, said Sunny, and everyone knew what she meant. She meant, what a terrible place. I don't want to live there at all. Well, it was nice to meet you, Violet said to Justice Strauss. Yes, said Justice Strauss, gesturing to her flower pot. Perhaps one day you could come over and help me with my gardening. That would be very pleasant, Violet said, very sadly. It would, of course, be very pleasant to help Justice Strauss with her gardening. But Violet could not help thinking that it would be far more pleasant to live in Justice Strauss's house instead of Count Olaf's. What kind of a man, Violet wondered, would carve an image of an eye into his front door. Mr. Poe tipped his hat to Justice Strauss, who smiled at the children and disappeared into her lovely house. Klaus stepped forward and knocked on Count Olaf's door, his knuckles rapping right in the middle of the carved eye. There was a pause, and then the door creaked open, and the children saw... Count Olaf, for the first time. Hello, 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 Count Olaf said, in a wheezy whisper. He was very tall and very thin, dressed in a grey suit that had many dark stains on it. His face was unshaven, and rather than two eyebrows like most human beings have, he had just one long one. His eyes were very very shiny, which made him look both hungry and angry. Hello, my children. Please step into your new home and wipe your feet outside so no mud gets indoors. As they stepped into the house, Mr. Poe behind them, the Baudelaire orphans realized what a ridiculous thing Count Olaf had just said. The room in which they found themselves was the dirtiest they had ever seen, and a little bit of mud from outdoors wouldn't have made a bit of difference. Even by the dim light of the one bare light bulb that hung from the ceiling, the three children could see that everything in this room was filthy, from the stuffed head of a lion which was nailed to the wall, to the bowl of apple cores, which sat on a small wooden table. Klaus willed himself not to cry as he looked around. "'This room looks like it needs a little work,' Mr. Poe said, peering around in the gloom. "'I realise that my humble home isn't as fancy as the Baudelaire mansion,' Count Olaf said. "'But perhaps with a bit of your money we could fix it up a little nicer.' Mr. Poe's eyes widened in surprise, and his coughs echoed in the dark room before he spoke. "'The Baudelaire fortune,' he said sternly, "'will not be used for such matters. "'In fact, it will not be used at all until Violet is of age.' "'Count Olaf turned to Mr. Poe with a glint in his eye like an angry dog.' For a moment, Violet thought he was going to strike Mr. Poe across the face. But then he swallowed. The children could see his Adam's apple bob in his skinny throat and shrugged his patchy shoulders. All right, then, he said. It's the same to me. Thank you very much, Mr. Poe, for bringing them here. Children? I will now show you to your room. Goodbye, Violet, Klaus, Sunny, Mr. Poe said, stepping back through the front door. I hope you will be very happy here. I will continue to see you occasionally, and you can always contact me at the bank if you have any questions. But we don't even know where the bank is, Klaus said. I have a map of the city, Count Olaf said. "'Goodbye, Mr. Poe.' He leaned forward to shut the door, and the Baudelaire orphans were too overcome with despair to get a last glimpse of Mr. Poe. They now wished they could all stay at the Poe household, even though it smelled. Rather than looking at the door then, the orphans looked down and saw that although Count Olaf was wearing shoes, he wasn't wearing any socks.' they could see in the space of pale skin between his tattered trouser cuff and his black shoe that Count Olaf had an image of an eye tattooed on his ankle matching the eye on his front door. They wondered how many other eyes were in Count Olaf's house, whether for the rest of their lives they would always feel as thou, Count Olaf, were watching them, even when he wasn't nearby. And that is where we close the book tonight on this episode of Down to Sleep. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that it's helped you relax and drift off. Hopefully you aren't even hearing my voice, but if you are, there are more than 100 episodes here on the free version of the podcast to listen to, and more than 220 on the Patreon Go ahead and rewind this one or pull up another reading and you'll get there. Until next time, thank you for listening and good night.